Do you ever sometimes feel like your prayers are going nowhere? That you pray and pray and it seems as though you don't accomplish anything? I suspect if you spend much time at all praying, and if you've had any experience with praying over some time, you have had that sense of wondering what exactly is happening here. I pray and pray, and my prayers seem to accomplish nothing. Nothing seems to change. Nothing seems to be any different. It feels as if my prayers mean nothing. I would suspect most of us have had those experiences. And in the moments when we face those kinds of things, when, when, we, when we encounter, when we come face to face with feeling as if our prayers are making no difference, we wonder what to do. What do we do in the moments when it feels as if we're going nowhere with our prayers? When it feels as if God is not doing what we would like for him to do and what we think he should do. What do we do? I'm convinced that Saul faces one of those moments in the story we read a few moments ago. The context of this story in 1 Samuel 13 is that uh, Saul has become the first king of Israel and he controls the army. They've had some battles, they've won some victories. And now, as we get into chapter 13, they are in trouble. The Philistines, their arch enemies, are gathering an army around them, and they are threatening them. And so Saul and Samuel talk, and Samuel says, look, you go there and prepare the people for battle. I'll be there in seven days to offer the sacrifices that, that will then be pleasing to God so that he will go with us into battle. And so Saul goes And he waits. And he waits one day and two days. He waits four days. He waits five days. He waits the seven days that Samuel says. And Samuel doesn't show up. And of course, this is an era where, you know, Samuel couldn't just text him and say, hey, I'll be a few minutes late. And Saul waits. And the seven days come and go. And he says, I've got to do something. The men are deserting me. The army is is diminished completely. You know, so much. And I need to do something because if I don't do something, I don't have enough people to fight the Philistines. And if we lose to the Philistines, we will become captives of the Philistines. And I know God doesn't want that. So Samuel says, so Saul says, bring me the sacrifices and he offers it. And it seems to always be the case. The minute he's done, Samuel arrives. And says, what's going on? And Saul says, well, you know, the men were deserting and we were going to lose the battle and you weren't coming. So I took matters into my own hands because we don't want to go fight without sacrificing first. And Samuel says, Saul, because of what you've done, the kingdom's going to be taken from you. And we read that and we go, wow, that's pretty harsh punishment for something that doesn't seem all that wrong. But the context of that is that God set up Israel in a certain way. That the king, Saul being the first king, he ruled the army. And he had, he had a lot of power, but not to sacrifice. 
Only one group of people could offer sacrifices, and that were the priests. And the priests offered the sacrifices, and, and Saul may be the king, but the priests who represent God, the real king, are the only ones who can sacrifice. And Saul knows that. He understands that. He knows it's the wrong thing to do, but he panics. The scripture says he and the people, the soldiers were afraid and they panicked. And I have a feeling that there is something in us that when we get to these moments of life where we, where God is not answering, God is not doing, God is not responding the way we want him to, the temptation for us is to do what Saul does and take matters into our own hands. Sometimes we're thinking, there's no other way to solve this. There is no other way around it. This is the moment, and the moment is going to 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 flee if I don't do something. Like Saul and the men deserting him, we feel like time is slipping away. The, the, the opportune moment is going to escape us. And if we don't do something, nobody is going to do something because it sure seems like God isn't going to do something. And so we take matters into our own hands. What we're really doing is saying, I know we shouldn't, but it gets us to the right end. And one of the subtle temptations of the evil one is to cause us to believe that the end justifies the means. We're getting to the right end. I mean, nobody, God himself, doesn't want Israel slaves to the Philistines. This is a good thing. We're not moving towards something that's bad. We're moving towards something that's obviously a part of something God would, would affirm. And how we get there is far less important than the fact that we get there. But the scriptures keep telling us that as much as God is is concerned about the end, he is every bit, if not more concerned, about the journey that gets us to the end. And in fact, I wonder if we decide that we are going to make decisions along the journey to get to the end that are contrary to the ways in which God is leading us and the plans of God and the known desires of God, to do that is going to take us to an end that looks very different from what we thought we were going to. And that certainly happens with Saul. It's one of the things I worry about in the, uh, the, the church, particularly in America. We have this mindset that, that we, we want to reach the world, and we should reach the, the world. We want to see people come to Christ, and, and no one, no Christian is going to argue with that, and certainly that's what God wants. And somehow we convince ourselves sometimes that it doesn't matter how we get them into the kingdom, as long as we get them into the kingdom. It doesn't matter how we act or what we do. If people are coming into the kingdom, then it's all good. But maybe it's not. I worry about this in the political realm. And you can, all over the map, doesn't matter what political affiliation you might be thinking about. All over the map, we have this mindset that says we have an end that's good. And it doesn't matter how we get there, as long as we get there. But it does matter. It matters greatly. It's significant. Because the, in, in the kingdom of God, the end never justifies the means. The means is what gets us to the end. 
And in the moments when we are tempted to not wait on God and to run ahead and to say, if somebody's going to solve this, I'm going to have to do it. We're going to have to do it. God is not acting the way we want him to. In those moments, God is trying to help us understand that waiting is what he wants from us. I'm not talking about idleness. I'm not talking about laziness. Because there are, there are lots of times when God says, go, do, act. But there are also times when God says, stop, wait. You know, one of our favorite phrases, you know, little sayings is, don't just sit there, do something. Maybe there are times where God is saying to us, don't just do something, sit there. Wait for me. Waiting's hard for us because we have wrapped our whole worth often into busyness. That's how we value our lives, that that we're busy, that we have things to do, that we have places to go. That's how we view that life is important so often. And we know, something inside of us knows that it's the wrong way to value life and the wrong way to value our worth. But it's hard because all the culture does that. But something in us says, no, maybe there's something different. Sometimes when I'm driving down 305, you know, going to Cuba, drive by all the Amish homes, there's a little tiny bit of me that's a little bit jealous of them. They don't have to answer emails. They don't have to, you know, they don't have to, to worry about a lot of the, the, the things in life that we worry about. Now, it's a little part of me because I still like light bulbs and I still like electricity and I still like, you know, modern conveniences. So I'm not saying I'm ready to give that up. But, but there's a little part of me that says... You know, the, just the, the ability to escape from some of that sometimes. And maybe that's why God created Sabbath. God created Sabbath because he knows that in our sinful nature, we are going to think that our value and worth is what we do. And Sabbath, we are reminded our value and worth is who we are children of God and to step back from all of the busyness and the distractions and all of those things to step back and to remember who we are and who God is see that's a lot of it it's who God is it's what we how we view God it's fascinating to me that Saul Samuel says to Saul he says you've done a foolish thing and we read that and we go, yeah, that wasn't very smart. But we don't really see the significance of that word, the word fool and all of the cognates of it throughout Scripture. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 begin by saying, only the fool, only fools say in their hearts, there is no God. Another translation says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And there is a sense in which when the word fool is used and foolish is used, there is a sense in which that is behavior that is saying there really isn't God. Or at least not the kind of God that we thought he was. And there is a sense in which Saul's actions are declaring God isn't who he says he is. He can't be trusted. His timing is not perfect. He is not good. Because otherwise he'd be handling this and he's not. So I'm going to have to take action. And in a sense, every time when God is saying to us, wait. And we run ahead. 
we are in essence saying God isn't really who he says he is. I don't really believe that. To wait is to trust that God is who he says he is. Someone I read this week, someone was talking about how one of the things that sets Yahweh apart from all the gods of all the other nations is the fact that, that you can wait on him because he's always seeking you. And the gods of all the other nations, there is no, there's no at all, they cannot fathom waiting on their God because the gods that they worship are not interested in human beings. The only reason that the only reason that God will do anything good for a human being is if the human being convinces that God, tricks that God, cajoles, begs, pleads enough with that God to get the God's attention and maybe to do something good for us. But Yahweh, you can wait for Yahweh because he's paying attention to us whether we ask him to or not. Yahweh's seeking us whether we seek him or not. Yahweh's pouring out grace upon us whether we admit it or not. Because that's the kind of God he is. And Saul misses that. Saul has lost this image of God. And it affects his ability to connect with God. And what you see here really in this story is kind of the why in the road for Saul. And what you find the rest of his life as recorded in 1 Samuel is a, is a widening of his distance from God. And so much so that by the time you get near the end of his life, he's going to visit a witch to find out the mind of God. That's what his prayer life looks like. There is danger in refusing to wait for God. I think that probably one of the reasons we struggle with waiting and its cousin silence is because we're a little bit afraid of what God's going to say to us if we give him a moment to speak to us. At least we worry about that. For about the last eight or ten years, I've been using the, the We Fit. It's a, it's a video exercise program and interactive program. As If you know the We, it's that kind of a of a tool. And uh, and it has a little board on it, a balance board it's called, and it is weighted. And so when you stand on it or do exercises on it, it measures you and it gives you feedback about it. And it, I found it to be a really great exercise program. But one of the things I've noticed is that if I miss three or four days of using it, even if I, I mean, it doesn't know I'm out doing something else, but if I miss three or four days using it, when you turn it on and I click my little picture on the screen, invariably the little voice will come up and say, oh, is that Wes? Oh, I don't recognize you. It's been so long. Where have you been? I'm thinking, who programmed this thing to be so sarcastic? I mean, come on. You know, and, and then when, you, when I stand on it, you know, you do a little body measurement thing and one of it's the weight and the little thing comes up and it says, ooh, that's overweight. And I'm like, I know that. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm doing this. I get it. You don't have to rub it into me. You know, and, and, and part of me is like, I'm afraid to go back and use it because I don't want to be berated by this machine, you know, this game. And sometimes I think maybe that's how we view God. 
If I give God a moment to speak to me, he's going to convict me and he's going to challenge me and he's going to judge me. And here's the honest truth. Probably God will. He probably will because he probably is going to put his finger on something in our life and say, you know that thing? You know that thing right there? Let's get rid of that because it's killing you. You know that relationship that is unhealthy for you? We need to do something about that because it's harming you. That attitude that you have, we need to deal with that attitude because it is leading you down a path to bitterness and destructiveness. And I don't want that for you. Any challenges God ever makes to us are always in our best interest. And the silence and the waiting that we do for God in his presence, yes, there probably is going to be some conviction, but it is always to make us better and to give us life and joy. Because that's always God's intent. And the struggle of waiting is believing that that's true. Do we believe that if we wait we are going to experience, probably in some deeper ways, the will of God. In many ways, this story leads us to the New Testament uh, prayer that, that uh, Jesus gives us the model for prayer. We prayed a few moments ago. And the line that says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the waiting prayer is, an, is embracing the will of God. And we know we can embrace it because as Paul writes to the Romans, God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. It's good. It's pleasing. It's perfect. We can trust him. But in the middle of the difficulties of life, in the struggles of life, we wrestle with that. Jairus wrestles with that in the New Testament story we read. Jesus is on his way to heal his daughter and this woman interrupts him. And Jesus, instead of saying, I'm glad you're healed, I've got things to do, stops and has a conversation with this woman. And the whole time, I am certain, Jairus is tapping his foot saying, what in the world are you doing, Jesus? My daughter is dying. Come on. But Jesus just keeps talking. Just keeps dealing with this woman. And it takes long enough that when he's done, here come the messengers to Jairus saying, Don't worry about it. She's dead. And Jairus has to be saying, Lord, really? And Jesus says, just hang on. I've got this. My timing is perfect. And instead of Jesus healing a sick girl, he raises a dead girl to new life. You think that didn't do something for the faith of the people in that family and the community? God's will is good, pleasing, perfect. And God's design for us, as Irenaeus said, is that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And that's what God created us to be, fully alive. To know the joy of abundant life. 
But the only way to be fully alive is to be fully engaged with God. And the only way we're ever going to be fully engaged with God is to learn to trust Him. And the most profound way and means of trusting Him is to wait for Him. And if we can see waiting as the means of getting us to abundant life, to intimacy with God, maybe it will change how we think about waiting prayer. I'm not saying that this is the only way to pray. There are lots of ways to pray. There are lots of dynamics to prayer, all of them vital and all of them important. But it seems to me that there is something foundational about this kind of praying. Because it is about nothing but trusting God. It's about nothing but believing that God is who he says he is. That God is good. That his timing is perfect. That his ways to us are love. And that his desires for us are abundant life. And ultimately, this is about relationship. And I'm convinced that sometimes, sometimes we are placed in a position to wait because it teaches us that God really is good, that His timing really is perfect, and that His designs for us really are abundant life. We can trust Him. And if we get to the end of our days and we don't see our prayers answered the way we want to, we can trust Him. And if we wait three days and God does it, we can trust Him. The bottom line is God is good, His timing is perfect, and we can trust Him. I'd like for us to take two minutes this morning of silence. Silence is hard for us. I could feel you getting a little bit uncomfortable with me when I started and just stood here looking at you. Silence is hard. And two minutes is going to seem like a long time, but I'd like for us to practice what we're talking about today. And to take just two minutes to wait on God, to listen to God. You may hear nothing from God, but you're there and you're waiting. And whatever he might say to you, hear it as a word of grace.
can trust you. And that any waiting we do for you is going to lead us to your good, pleasing, perfect will. Give us grace to see you as you are. In the name of Christ Jesus.